The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Wisconsin, as that state, well, could be a decisive moment for the Donald Trump campaign. Will the people of Wisconsin break Mr. Donald's streak and bring the GOP frontrunner, well, maybe not to his knees, but at least to question, question, question whether or not anybody could tear Donald Trump down? Good afternoon. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show on this April 5th. 2016. I'm Igor Volsky here sitting in the beautiful Center for American Progress studio coming to you live from Washington, D.C. Joining me is Sally Tucker, who's put this wonderful show together, is running the board and, of course, the Leslie Marshall crew back in where? California or Buffalo or somewhere. They're coming to us somewhere and they're putting it all together, all for you, as we dive into the election, dive into some activities around the Supreme Court uh, this morning and this afternoon. And, of course, please be part of the conversation, 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. If you want to be part of the conversation, we want to hear from you. And, of course, also on Twitter, I'm at Igor Volsky and at Leslie Marshall. Let us know what you think about the news of the day. But first, joining me in studio now here at the Center for American Progress is Elliot, An- Elliot Anderson. He's a veteran and an assemblyman out in Nevada. He came here to D.C. to meet with his senator and tell his senator, who is one of, what, 52 Republicans who's refusing to hold a hearing for President Obama's nominee, Judge Merrick Garland, to the Supreme Court to tell him to do his job. Elliot, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So you are here. Uh, you, you left your warm Las Vegas weather. You came here to D.C. where it's like unseasonably very cold and we're all shivering outside of the Supreme Court. Why, why did you make the trip? Why was this important to you? Well, I have a great respect for the law. I have a legal background uh, myself, and you know, I really see the effect that uh, having judicial vacancies has on the, the lives of ordinary Nevadans and on businesses and, and everyone. It really can cause problems. The vacancy can cause problems for businesses. This, this to me, is an interesting argument that you don't often hear. Talk about that. Why do businesses need, I guess, what, uniform laws across the country? Well, not only do they need uniform laws, I mean, you th- think of it as a big, large company who has, does business in multiple states, and you have, you know, uh, many different circuits. I think I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers: ten or eleven, and uh, you can't have ten or different, uh, ten or eleven different rulings on the same type of issue. And so, if you have one business that deals with one type of area, and then you're being told to do it eleven 
10 different ways, it's going to cause you problems. Any law student, any uh, lawyer who's ever had to research the law, federal law, and you don't have a Supreme Court case on point, you have to go around and look at every single circuit court, and it, it creates compliance problems. You don't know what to do. Sometimes those cases can conflict, and so it's hard to have uniformity in your, in your business practice. And as far as uh, other um, um, businesses, even just having a judicial vacancy can increase litigation costs. It can uh, make it harder uh, to make a profit. It hurts your bottom line. It makes it harder to employ people. So it can cause a real problem. And it's an argument, incidentally, that Republicans themselves were making back in 2008 when they argued that Democrats weren't confirming enough judges. They had held a special hearing in July where they talked about this very issue, about the fact that you have a vacancy on a court. It increases the cost of doing business. Now, you also had the opportunity to meet with your senator in person, Senator Dean Heller. Take me inside that meeting. You came to him and you said what? Well, it was a friendly meeting, first of all. Um, you know, it's hard uh, even for an assemblyman to get a meeting with their senator sometimes. In Nevada, we're a bit of a smaller state, so it can be a bit easier. Um, we had a good discussion um, just about what what I was just talking about. Um, it's really important that we keep people working. We're in a fragile recovery, and it's starting to go better, and we need to make sure that we don't do anything that jeopardizes that. Elliot Anderson, he's a veteran and a Nevada assemblyman in studio with me. Your calls, by the way, at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. So, Elliot, you presented this case to him, and how how did he respond? Did he say, I hear you and I'll think about it, or did he, make, did he push back on what you were saying? I think Senator Heller understands the importance to business of having a functioning court system. He mentioned uh, a court that we have in Clark County called the Business Court that it's designed to make litigation speedier for business-to-business disputes, commercial litigation. Uh, It's something that's been a good innovation in making it uh, easier uh, for people to get their their, um, day in court and to have it um, uh, decided rather quickly and efficiently and, you know, done right. So he understood he understood exactly where you were coming from. He does. And, and you know, this is something that we have experience with in Nevada. Well, we are actually recently just had uh, an appellate court created under Constitution. We we're one of the few states that didn't have one. We did that on the ballot um, in 2014 after going through the legislature twice. And it was remarkable to see the shift uh, of Republican votes in the legislature from uh, a mixed um, vote, uh, you know, Republicans mixed many against us, to a unanimous vote in 2013 on the second time through the legislature to get it on the ballot. And the big change was that we engaged the business community and we said, look, this is not helping anyone um, to you know, have the Supreme Court overloaded, not being able to decide cases. And so by creating that, that appellate court, we were able to decrease litigation costs and increase certainty uh, for businesses doing business in Nevada. You know, I think what surprises a lot of people when it comes to Garland and the court is that these guys... Uh, the Republican senators, aren't even giving him a hearing. They're not even all meeting with him. So it's not that you went in there saying, you have to vote for this nominee or that nominee, and you know you have to vote for him now, you have to support him, you have to approve of him. You, you said, I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, you went in there and you said, let's just hold a hearing, 
Judge Garland will be able to talk about his qualifications. He'll be able to answer any questions you might have. Why don't you even sit with him in a committee room with all the other senators sitting there and you'll have 10, 15 minutes and many, many rounds of questions, probably as many as you want, to figure out if he's the right nominee, right? Because they're saying we're not going to vote for this guy because he's you know, nominated by Obama, because it's an election, yada, yada, yada. I mean, what was his response just to that request of having a simple hearing? Well, we asked him for a meeting. We didn't. We he's not on the judiciary committee. He's not a member of leadership. And so, you know, we want to get the the nomination process moving. And I think that starts with individual senators becoming comfortable, getting to know the person they'd be asked uh, to take a vote for the most important court uh, in, in probably in the country. To be honest with you, it's an or, um, it's, a, it's a very extremely important court, um, and. Um, Everyone knows this. So did he? Did he at least say he'll consider it? He was he was noncommittal. I mean, I, I didn't expect. <laughs> it's a very friendly meeting. <laughs> I, I didn't expect him to. Yeah, you know, I didn't expect him to come with a commitment. I, you know, I just wanted to take the time to express why, you know, we thought it was important. You know, and I hear told him, you know, I hear from uh, our my constituents not so much about the court, but about just a general frustration with government not working. And uh, so it was important for me to express those concerns that we need to show as as elected officials that we can get things done. Uh, uh, and, you know, uh, have a government that we can be proud of. Yeah, and it feels one thing to have a divided government in which Republicans are kind of holding things at a standstill, and they have been for a very long time. And it's another thing, right, to have that kind of inaction bleed into the court system where Americans, I think, view, particularly as you point out correctly, the Supreme Court with maybe greater esteem, the sense that it's above partisan politics, the sense that it can't just be politicized that well. And now the, the, that this is bleeding into that very structure, which has final say in many in many respects on our laws, that's the thing that's really troubling, I'm sure, to your constituents. It is. And, uh, you know, I, I think we have to look at the broader political environment and ask why people are so angry. And I, I would submit that part of it is because we can't even meet with people. Yes. We, you know, we can't even talk talk to each other. And that's frustrating. That frustrates me to no end. And I think all of us who are in elected office need to take pains to understand that and understand what our actions on any one issue has on that toxicity and what it's doing in the environment that it's creating. I think we need to um, you know, remember uh, that we need to leave uh, government in a better place than where we found it. Well, Elliot Anderson, thank you so much for coming in, meeting with me. Maybe you'll vote for me, but at least we had this wonderful meeting. Elliot Anderson, he's a Nevada Assemblyman here in D.C., met with Senator Heller and asked him to at least meet, meet with Judge Garland. And then, of course, the ultimate push here is to have a hearing on Judge Garland and for these senators to have a vote. Again, if you want to be part of the conversation, the best way to do that is give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. I'm Igor Volsky of the Center for American Progress Action Fund, sitting in for Leslie Marshall. We'll be back right after this. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE.
after the hour of the Leslie Marshall Show on this April 5th, 2016. By the way, if you want to be part of the conversation, do give us a call at 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. The Senate is finally back in session, and so are their constituents here in D.C. demanding that they, well, do their jobs, hold a hearing on Judge Merrick Garland, ultimately, of course, hold a vote and decide whether or not they should fill that ninth seat on the Supreme Court. Joining me now here in studio at the Center for American Progress is Judge Herb Brown. He's the former, a former Supreme Court Justice from Ohio, and Erin Corcoran. She's a law professor at the University of New Hampshire School of Law. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. So you two had some interesting experiences. We were talking during the break of trying to meet you, Judge, with Senator Rob Portman, who, of course, is a senator from Ohio, your state, running now for re-election, has said from day one that he's not. He's not going to hold any hearings for Portman. He doesn't support hearings. He hasn't met with him. I don't know if he's even expressed an openness to meet with him. I think he's going to meet with him to tell him why he's not supporting him. (laughs) (laughs) So you made your way to his office. We went to his office, and um, he and I happened to go to the same law school, uh, which was University of Michigan. And uh, I felt that uh, the person who was a law student the Rob Portman from that era who kayaked across China would be open and and be willing to treat this very well-qualified candidate fairly. But um, we didn't get very far. We we saw a very low-level staffer. So you saw a staffer, and what did the staffer say? Did you make an ask of the staffer? Uh, Yes, but he basically said, well, we're hearing from both sides. He was quite cool. Uh, and not very welcoming. It appeared that he really didn't want to be there. Talking uh, to you. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we gave him some editorials from the Ohio papers, which have been very uh, favorable to Judge Garland. And Aaron, you met with uh, or tried to meet with Senator Ayotte, the senator from New Hampshire. She, too, agrees with Portman that no, 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 no hearings until after the election. How are you received? Well, I was, you know, I was hoping that I would be able to get an audience at least with the senator, if not with her, with her staff, um, because she has, you know, had a history of working on nominations in a bipartisan fashion. Um, most recently, Susan Rice was confirmed to be U.S. Attorney for New Hampshire, both through the support of Senator Shaheen and Senator Ayotte, and before that, Lonnie McCafferty. However, I was not even able to get a meeting with a, a staff member at all. I was just, um, and I put a request in last week, um, mm-hmm. letting them know I was coming to town. Um, I know it's a busy time, but um, I was disappointed. Now, I'm so glad that both of you are here because you both are creatures of the law. And so (laughs) a conversation we don't often hear in this space, you know, there's the political conversation, um, but there's really not a lot said about the consequence on laws and establishing precedent and ruling as a full court. What does it mean? Let me start with you, Judge. What does it mean for there to be a vacancy from a legal perspective, for, from uh, important cases that the court will be deciding in the coming weeks and days? What does it mean for their ability to function having only eight members? Well, the, the first thing it means is that uh, 
in a 4-4 split, that is in the most controversial cases, they can't be decided. And that leaves the law uh, fragmented because it leaves in place the ruling from the district that the case arose from, but that's not necessarily binding on the other districts. So it just creates a mishmash. You have a patchwork of laws. Yes. And um, it's it's not good. The professor probably can elaborate and on professor, that. And professor, how do you teach this to your students? I mean, here we all know about the process, how a, how a person becomes a judge or how a nominee becomes a justice. Now it looks like they've really kind of torn it up, broken it up, establishing, you know, if they can't establish yes. a precedent with a majority here, at least politically they're establishing a precedent that's very dangerous for the confirmation process itself. Absolutely, and it's ironic because um, one of the first units I teach in my administrative law class is the Appointments Clause, Article 2, Section 2. Well, change um, those lesson plans. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, I was in the process of walking through how the process works, and we heard that the president was going to be announcing his nomination, um, which is his constitutional obligation to do. Um, and I, we, my law school class went down to watch that press conference, and then we talked about it afterwards. And they asked me, so what's next? And I said, well, here's what's supposed to happen next. Here's what's happened since 1916. Here's what's looking like it's not going to happen, because almost immediately after the nomination was was named, um, Republicans were already saying we're going to obstruct this in an unprecedented way. Um, we're not going to fulfill our constitutional obligation to advise and consent. Um, and it's actually it's disheartening as a professor to try and impart this doctrine to our to my students and then then watch this all play out as a as a political process as opposed to um, a constitutional lesson. Mike from Tennessee, uh, you're on the air. Good afternoon. How you guys doing? Uh, Hi, Mike. I just want to know. I just wanted to know. Um, have you guys considered that this was a strategy of President Obama to nominate Garland, knowing that he was they was going to obstruct him from being on the bench, and the fact that um, that he knew that it would cause them problems, you know, with some of the senators that running for election, and I don't think he ever really believed. I think. Garland was just a setup. Uh, the question well, is, was Garland the show? No, uh, no, Judge. Mike, um, the president is obligated under the Constitution to uh, nominate someone to fill this position. And I am hopeful that out of the spirit of fairness and that the senators who are opposing this will realize that they've taken on an oath to uphold the Constitution and that Judge Garland will be appointed. I don't... Uh, view this as just an exercise at all. Right. Can I add one yes. point? I mean, I think, in fact, I think he was very thoughtful about his appointee. I think he wanted to p pick a consensus nominee. And if you look at a recent op-ed by Richard Painter in the New York Times, who was an ethics counsel to President George Bush, he said if when he, when he was in the White House, had there been a democratically controlled Senate with a Republican president, this is exactly the kind of nominee he would have picked, a consensus nominee. Judge Herb Brown is a former uh, justice on the Ohio Supreme Court. All right, 32 minutes after the hour of the Leslie Marshall Show on this, ooh, yet another primary Tuesday as voters in Wisconsin go to the polls and try to knock down the Donald, <laughs> who needs Wisconsin and its, what, 42 delegates to make it, uh, make it more comfortable for him to become the nominee at the Republican convention 
in Cleveland in July on the first ballot. But, of course, going into the contest, as we all heard, he's down, 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 poll after poll, showing him trailing Texas Senator Ted Cruz joining me here at the Center for American Progress Studios to discuss that and more is my good friend Daniela Gibbs-Leger. She's the Vice President for Communications and Strategy here at the Center for American Progress. And you could follow her on Twitter at dgibber123. And please do, because as I always say, it's a great follow. Thank you. It's just a solid follow. Thanks. I try to be very funny. And, and sometimes substantive. And you, you'll make us laugh on Twitter and here, I'm sure. I <laughs> uh, want to hear from you as well. 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543 if you want to be part of the program. And let us know if this could be the beginning of the end for the Donald, <laughs> which, as you know, Daniela, is a dangerous thing oh, to say because goodness. we've been predicting it. <laughs> we predicted it when he announced in August. Then we predicted it. Um, after he stumbled in Iowa, then, of course, he went on to win New Hampshire. Do you think, though, that here in a state where the conservative vote seems far more united than anywhere else that we've seen, where conservative talk radio has really taken him on in a serious way, can this be it? Can he? Could he have burst the Trump bubble? Um... No. I mean, I've gotten in trouble for saying that before, so I'm just going to say, nope, this hasn't burst his bubble. Will it slow him down a little bit? I think yes. Um, but I I don't believe that after this, it's like, oh, that's it, you know, here we go, Ted Cruz. Um, I mean, we'll see what happens in the next couple of primary contests. But I, I Donald Trump has amazing staying power. It's even, remarkable. In, in, it is remarkable. And even after he loses, even after he says something completely outrageous that if any other candidate said it, it would have been over for them, he bounces back. So I, you know, we'll see what happens here. Wisconsin is also, it's a unique state. You know, I think conservatives there, it's not that other conservatives don't take their politics very seriously. They do, but they take their, their policy very seriously there. And, you know, they're they're very conservative. Um, and, you know, you've had Scott Walker, who is extremely unpopular, but with conservatives, he's very, very popular. And I think the Donald's lack of substance and sometimes the lack of saying things that make sense really bothered a lot of conservatives there to the point where you see the Stop Trump movement really taking form there. And it also feels to me here that maybe there's just a certain level of childish behavior <laughs> that Americans can really stomach. I mean, I hope that's true. <laughs> right? Maybe we've seen enough of just this craziness that, as you point out, he can say whatever he wants. He mm -hmm. gets away with it. No consequences, no repercussions at all. That maybe we've kind of, as a nation here, have seen enough and said, oi, no more. <laughs> and we're now looking to Wisconsin as the place that could be his first big stumbling block. It's like, really, Wisconsin, it's all on you. I mean, no pressure. You know, no pressure at all. I mean, maybe maybe that is the case. And, you know, maybe some of these interviews that he's been giving with, like, the Post and the New York Times, where it's a long-form interview, uh, you know, they print out the entire transcript, and you can actually read his foreign policy views, for example, and, and see how from paragraph to paragraph it's more insane after the other. Uh, and, and maybe that's actually beginning to hurt. I him. mean, that's also a good point here, because you did have instances leading into Wisconsin where he really stumbled on policy. Certainly abortion mm -hmm. is a big, shiny example where he 
said that women should be criminalized or, or penalized in some way for having an abortion, then quickly walked it back, which is very unusual for the Donald. Mm-hmm. And I think, if anything, made him seem just like a regular old politician. <laughs> um, and then all of these series of interviews he's given to the Washington Post and the New York Times, where he's laid out a foreign policy vision that lacks any real understanding. Saying to the Japanese or the South Koreans, go ahead and build up your nuclear weapons, we're not going to pay for it anymore. Right. I mean, I think is a scary proposition for a lot of these conservative voters who voted for lawmakers and candidates who kind of traditionally espouse a much more expansionist foreign policy view. So yes, maybe maybe it's a combination. Maybe. How about we maybe. cut them those? It's a combination <laughs> of really kind of just hard-to-believe policy stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then crazy rhetoric equals Trump loss. Maybe that's the secret maybe, maybe that's what <laughs> has been able to really hammer. Yes, maybe that's the secret sauce. But again, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how big the loss is tonight. There is a possibility that he comes out of Wisconsin with no delegates, which would be pretty amazing. Um, but, you know, like I said, we've we've been down this road before, so who knows what could happen in the next two weeks, and he can amazingly, like, you know, regenerate. Well, Michael from the Bronx joins us now. Uh, Michael, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. And, you know, as an um, African-American male and an advocate for equal rights, I must say that Donald Trump has crossed the line of his comment regarding women and abortions. I am so sick of him and the other GOPs with their obsession over abortions and obsession with the case of Roe v. Wade, and I wish everyone would just go back to that decision, that Supreme Court decision, reread it, and you see there's not a doggone thing that's mentioning abortions. The whole concept is a woman's right to choose with her own body. That means if Republicans get their heads out of their rear ends, they would see that this decision protects advocates for um, pro-life as much as it protects advocates for abortion, because we already have cases where women say, no, I'm pregnant, I'm keeping my baby, my body, my choice. That's right. And my body, my choice. Michael, thank you. Danielle, isn't that the irony here, is that by going too far on abortion, he lost many conservative votes. (laughs) But there is an end point, it feels like, on this issue. Yeah, no, he absolutely did. The abortion thing was absolutely amazing and astonishing. He literally, like, reversed himself, then reversed himself, and then reversed himself again. Three statements in three hours. And and just imagine if that was, like, him dealing with Putin. Like, he says something, then, no, his office is going to issue a statement clarifying it later and meanwhile like you know he like sends nukes over to russia or something you know on the abortion thing and i think this is this is a problem we have seen in the past with republicans and and overreach you know they're all about you know keeping government out of our lives except when it comes to you know a woman's body and her right to choose and you know you know polling has shown obviously that the majority of americans do support a woman's right to choose and they don't like government overreach so, you know, it's a it's a slippery slope. It has hurt them in the past. Um, you know, I I think that might also have been some of the conservative freak out over his comments because they understand that, you know, once you once you start going down that path, you're going to anger a lot of people. Well, Danielle, the phones are lighting up. People want to talk to you. I want to talk to them. Reggie from Georgia. Good afternoon. Reggie, are you there? Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Good afternoon. Oh. 
Yes, hi, hi, to you, hi. Happy Tuesday to you guys. I would just like to know who's who's bold, bad, and courageous and tough enough to stand up to Donald Trump. Because, as I told Mark Levine yesterday, we had conservative radio and TV talk shows who were originally and intentionally planning on voting for him. Now they've all turned against them. Even Fox News, to some extent, has turned against them. And even Joe Stuck Scarborough, Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski have turned against them to, to some extent. And Chris Re- Matthews has, too. Yeah, he, he's turning people off. And Reggie, thank you for listening to the full spectrum of talk radio. Danielle, who here is the alternative? It feels to me like folks are turning to Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. the same establishment <laughs> people who were so repulsed by him as a senator. Yeah. It feels like, you know, somebody said on CNN, he's like the the date you hire to your high school reunion because you don't got nobody else. But they'll <laughs> turn against him as soon as there any other kind of possibility. And people are floating other folks who aren't in this race, particularly Wisconsin favorite Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House. Yeah, it's very much like this thing that happens in D.C. a lot if you're at a cocktail party and you're talking to somebody and you're kind of looking over his shoulder to see if somebody more interesting has walked in a room. <laughs> oh, that's so, what you were doing when you were... <laughs> I see. I would never that do that to you. Stretching. Ever. Stretching your legs. So, you know, I think the Republican establishment, they're holding their nose and looking at Ted Cruz and, and, and nodding their head, but meanwhile they're looking over his shoulder and they're hoping that, you know, Paul Ryan walks in the door and is like, I'm here. Meanwhile, he's saying, no, no, no. Which he said before he no. became speaker. No, guys, no. no. I don't want to do this. Pick <laughs> me, pick me. Danielle Gibbs-Leger, <laughs> she's the Vice President for Communications and Strategy here at the Center for American Progress, the Center for American Pro- Progress Action Fund on Twitter at dgdgibber123. How do I not know that? I don't know. I'm just going to stick around through the break. Join me on the other side as we get into more about what is going to happen today in Wisconsin. I'm Igor Volsky sitting in for Leslie Marshall. Stay with us. Leslie Marshall, straight and on point. 8886 Leslie. Center for American Progress Action Fund, sitting in with for Leslie with Daniela Gibbs-Leger. Uh, she is the Vice President for Communications and Strategy here in studio as we continue our conversation about what promises to be a crazy Wisconsin primary. But it's not just the politics that we're here to discuss. It's also the election law in Wisconsin, which is operating for the first time in a presidential election under the tight, strict voter ID law put in place by that state's governor, Scott Walker. And joining me now on the phone is Alice Olstein, political reporter at Think Progress, thinkprogress.org, who's done tremendous coverage of the consequences that we could see later tonight as we wait and see the election returns. Alice, good afternoon. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Alice, this is the first time that in a presidential election that Wisconsinites are going to the polls and they have to present a certain kind of ID or only certain kinds of IDs will allow them to vote as they stand in line and wait to pick Trump or Cruz or Bernie or Hillary. What are those restrictions and why has this particular law uh, been in the courts for the last couple of years? Uh, What are folks objecting to? Well, this is one of the most strict voter ID laws in the whole country. Um, We don't really see anything like this outside of the Deep South, and it was tied up in the courts and actually shut down by several courts uh, before eventually getting to the Supreme Court, which upheld it. The lower federal court said that this is like a poll tax, that it burdens people, there are costs involved, because While certain kinds of ID are free, it's not free to get the documents you need to get that ID. So So you're saying you have to, so folks have to pay to get Mm -hmm. documentation to access the ID they need to vote? Sometimes. So if you are someone who does not have your original birth certificate because you are elderly and you've moved from state to state or you're homeless or you just don't have the funds to access that, um, then that presents a problem. I went with a couple to the DMV uh, last week to try to get the ID they needed to vote. Um, The woman, I I wrote about this at Big Progress, um, so folks can check out the full story, but the woman who has a disability and can't drive and who moved from Illinois, she did not have her original birth certificate. And there is a process at the DMV for them to verify your birth certificate and order you a new one for free, but it takes many weeks. And for some people, they do have to pay after all. And so it's it's a confusing process, and the end result is that she is not going to be able to vote today. Her partner, because he did have his birth certificate, will. Now, she still had her Social Security card. She had an Illinois state ID. She had a proof of residence, but none of that was good enough. I mean, Daniela, to me, this feels like not just that it's crazy policy, but when you ask why this is happening, what's the purpose behind Mm -hmm. these laws, it feels like they always disenfranchise a certain kind of voter. Yes, oddly enough, it's the voter who tends to vote Democratic, um, no matter where you look. So these are some elderly voters, these are college voters. College students, you know, um, poor voters, voters of color. And, you know, all of these laws are, you know, laws looking, you know, for a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. You know, the the, the vast voter fraud that the right loves to talk about when they're passing these laws. Like studies after studies have shown that it is, I don't know what the percentage is or the tiny like point zero 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 one percent of all like voting cases that turn out to be fraud. And in-person voting fraud like hardly ever, ever happens. So it's very clear why they're doing this. They're not trying to solve a problem because said problem doesn't exist. They're trying to keep as many voters who wouldn't vote for them from the polls. You know, and as Americans, it's it's disgusting. We should be doing everything in this country to make sure that everybody can vote. We should be making it as easy as possible for people to vote. And instead, you have states like Wisconsin that are that are throwing up these roadblocks. Alice, you spend a lot of 
time in Wisconsin reporting on this issue and talking to people who had trouble obtaining the proper identification. How well known are these changes that are going into effect today, on the, at least on the presidential level? Do, do people know what they need and whether or not they have what they need to vote? Now, that is a big problem, but I also want to add to what Daniela said. Um, I, as I reported this week, um, a study found that there were just seven cases of voter fraud out of three million votes cast in Wisconsin that wow. were studied. So that is a rate of 0.0002%. Mm. And a federal court in 2014 wrote when they struck down the law that no rational person could be worried about voter fraud. And so she, this federal judge said that the Governor Scott Walker's administration's arguments in favor of the law were not convincing and not worth the burden it placed on voters, in her opinion. Um, now, about the education around the law, that's an additional problem I've written about. The state elections agency, which is called the Government Accountability Board, they estimated that they would need about half a million dollars to, you know, put ads on TV and on the radio and billboards and educate people about what they needed to bring to the polls. And they were not allocated any of that money by the state legislature. So they have had to operate on almost nothing. They've been asking community groups to help them get out the word. And many community groups have been doing that. Many student groups have been doing that. But I have run into a lot of people who just were not aware of the law because there has not been the kind of publicity campaign that we've seen in other states with these laws. Now, we've um, seen at least initial reports of how this election day is going, and folks are reporting a, a big turnout, which would... Uh, the assumption goes benefit somebody like Bernie Sanders or maybe Donald Trump. Have you heard, though, of reports where folks have been turned away at the polls because they didn't have the proper IDs just today? Now, um, I went to the polls here in Milwaukee, where I am right now. Um, I went at Marquette University, and their students were waiting for over an hour to vote. And some, because of that long wait and because they had to get to class, gave up and left. And they said they'd try to come back later. But you never know if, if they'll be able to. And so uh, that presents a real problem. In terms of IDs, those students were lucky because there was a university office to get people the ID they needed right there, but not every campus is providing that. Some campuses are providing it, but you have to go all the way across town to get it. Some campuses are not providing it at all. Um, that, that kind of free ID. I also spoke to a woman in Madison who, like I was explaining before, she didn't have her birth certificate and she was not able to get the kind of ID she needed to vote. She's also from out of state and could not use her the, the legal government document she already had. Wow. I mean, the fact that you can't use, as a student, your student ID to vote right. is really just tremendous. Right. Or a government-issued ID that happens to be from another state. Like, that's, it's, it's mind-blowing. The hoops you have to jump through to vote in Wisconsin. Yeah. My goodness. All right. Alice Holstein is a political reporter at Think Progress. You can read her fine, fine reporting from Wisconsin and elsewhere at thinkprogress.org.
And Daniela Gibbs-Leger is the Vice President for Communications and Strategy at the Center for American Progress and the Center for American Progress Action Fund, from which I also <laughs> hail. Thank you so much, both of you, for being on with me. A former colleague, a current colleague, couldn't ask really for anything better. And, of course, we'll be, wa- we'll, we'll be watching the election results uh, closely as they come out uh, later this Later this evening, polls close at nine and the hope, the anticipation is you'll have a quick result and we'll all be in bed by <laughs> ten. Are they on are they on our are they our behind us? I think they're an hour behind. Hour behind. Uh, hour behind. All right, well I'll be in bed. So. You'll be in bed? Yep. <laughs> well, I'll be putting together a delicious election memo that upon <laughs> upon your um your 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 eyes opening in the morning you'll be able to see all the results there. Your number our number for to reach us is eight 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 six five three seventy five forty three. If you want to be part of the conversation, that's eight 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 six Leslie. I'm Igor Volsky. We'll be back right after this. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Igor Olsky here, sitting in for Leslie Marshall on this April 5th, 2016, Primary Tuesday. Yet another one as voters head out to vote in Wisconsin. 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. If you want to be part of the conversation, we're coming to you live this afternoon from the Center for American Progress, the beautiful Center for American Progress studios where we have... Really, I wish everybody could see this wonderful table that is a like a found wood table that you would restore that I've been talking about since I saw the studio. And I just Sally Tucker, who's who's helping produce the show here, is laughing at me because I, since the, the moment I saw it, I can't shut up about it. And so I thought I'd plug it here so that people know, people of America know, that the Center for American Progress has some beautiful furniture. It's understandable. I remember when they put this studio in and it was basically like a... A school desk here. So this is a huge upgrade. Well, and there's Ken Good, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, who has revealed that his he's been at the center almost since its founding. What has been what, nine? Uh, unfortunately, ten? approaching 13, 13 years. 13? Ken, yeah. 13? Yeah, that's ten. either for good or for bad. Ten, you know, I, they can't talk. get rid of me, I know. 13. Yeah. I'm here at eight, and I like wear this, you know, eight's pretty good. Yeah. But you're 13, you have me beat. Very few people. I mean, yeah. Daniela, who was here before, he also has me beat, actually. Yeah. But yeah. 13, that's remarkable. I was the sixth employee, and I think, you know, I'm probably going to be uh, arrested for stalking the organization pretty soon. <laughs> it's getting close. Yeah. It's getting close. By the way, on Twitter, at Ken Good, uh, G-U-D-E is how you follow him there. Ken, so much to talk about. You are a, uh, a scholar of national security. And we've seen over the last couple of days really a remarkable chain of events where you saw just thousands and thousands of documents leaked that the news organizations are calling the Panama Papers that seem to reveal all of these shell companies that were being used by 
world leaders who should go unnamed, Vladimir Putin, (laughs) to uh, hide all kinds of business transactions and escape taxation. What's going on? Well, this was just an unprecedented uh, document dump, 11.5 million 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 documents. Uh, it took a team of about 100 journalists to go through them Here over many, the, many months. In the mere thousands. Yeah. Embarrassing. Yeah. And uh, you know, what they have revealed is just the incredible extent of the use of these shell corporations to hide business transactions, to hide profits, to hide assets. Now, some of this can be simple taking advantage of the tax laws as they exist, but a lot of it is to cover up illicit activity. Uh, whether that's drug running, whether that's just dr- other other organized crime, or whether that's related to bribes of official officials in various countries. And what we're seeing is a tremendous knock-on effect, particularly in Europe, where the prime minister of, of Iceland has already had to resign because it was revealed that through one of these shell corporations, he actually had a financial stake in one of the banks or several of the banks that he was overseeing the process of winding down as a result of the financial crisis. And that's kind of a, a, the textbook case of a conflict of interest because he was making decisions of, that he had a financial stake in the outcome that was not publicly known. And so he's the first casualty that we've seen, and it's just been a matter of less than two days since this came out over the weekend, and he's already gone. And, of course, the other global leader who's implicated, albeit indirectly, in these papers is Russian President Vladimir Putin, whose associates are closely linked here. And you kind of have a paper trail of how wealthy they became Mm -hmm. from their friendship with Putin. Of course, Russia has denied any kind of connection, saying that these are all fake, meant to embarrass the president. But what are the ties there for Putin? What are the dangers? Well, it just is another example of how his cohort and people around him uh, in Russia have enriched themselves uh, through the policies that they've implemented since he took over in in 2000. I think one of his childhood friends who is a a cellist is, is now worth billions of dollars and you know, I, I don't I don't know about the the career choices that some people make, <laughs> but I didn't realize that being an international cellist was so lucrative. Um, but but look, you know, they're trying to spin it as if this is uh, part of a a widespread anti-Russian plot. But the facts are the facts here. This is this is not innuendo. This is we have the actual documents that provide this kind of paper trail that leads directly back to the inner circle of people around Putin. You know, part of this are the specifics of what the papers actually reveal, which is fascinating in and of itself. 11 million reams of what paper pages. Mm -hmm. But the other larger point, I think, to be made is the kind of corrosive effect that government corruption has on democracy, on government, on an individual's trust in government. I mean, the fact that you're seeing this in Iceland and Russia, probably elsewhere, I think really betrays, um, you know, certainly a leader's distaste for the folks that they govern and has, I think, in many areas of the world, particularly I'm thinking about the Middle East, this notion of constant corruption Mm -hmm. has created an opening for some radical forces, particularly ISIS and ISIL and and the Islamic State, to come in to these communities in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, and to say that we will rid your government of corruption. 
And in many ways, this kind of corruption that's exemplified in these papers and we're seeing nationwide is in some ways kind of a motivating factor for the troubles we're seeing uh, and the dangers we're seeing in the world. I think that's true. And, uh, you know, you look at, at one of the countries that is implicated in this and and that is Ukraine. Uh, they're dealing my homeland. You know, they're dealing with Tread a, carefully. <laughs> they're obviously dealing with a, a, a very difficult security situation. The new uh, prime minister uh, of Ukraine was. Uh, he said that he was going to uh, remove himself from any of his previous financial holdings when he took office. Uh, these uh, papers, one of the things that it reveals is that instead of actually divorcing himself from them and 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 setting himself aside, he just transferred them to a shell corporation which he had the ownership stake in. And what we see is this kind of cycle of uh, uh, of a lack and, and dissolving of trust between the, the governments and, and the people whom, with whom they govern. Uh, and it does kind of feed into this, these challenges that we're seeing all over the world. But I will also note that this is not just a problem for nascent democracies. Mature democracies like the United Kingdom are going through a similar uh, uh, series of revelations around their prime minister, David Cameron, and the uh, the, the holdings of his father, who has since passed away, but uh, his father had one of these uh, uh, shell corporations where they held a lot of their family holdings. Uh, and it goes against exactly the kind of policies that Cameron would have been pushing in the UK of trying to remove uh, uh, the British territories from this kind of tax avoidance, tax evasion stigma and scheme. And that was a big thrust of a lot of his uh, uh, policies in his first term and, in, and now into the early part of his second term. And it turns out that his family is doing this same kind of thing, and it's been a real challenge for him just in the last 36 hours. Not to the level that we've seen in Iceland, but it, it really goes again to that erosion of trust, and it can happen in mature democracies as well. Let's go to the phones. Robert from Florida is calling on line one. Robert, good afternoon. Hi, how are you? How are you? Uh, I just wanted to make a quick comment. Um, the re these Panama Papers, what this is only going to do now is further create the surge for Sanders and Trump because they're the only two candidates that have really been talking about the corruption, not just nationally, but worldwide. And they're the only ones that said that they would actually um, work on approaching it and getting that fixed and putting everyone out there. That's, that's why you see all this anti-Trump stuff going on around the world, because these world leaders are scared. And this just happening is further exploiting it. Now that's just confirming it. So don't be surprised when you see Sanders and Trump go further up in the polls now. Robert, thank you. Ken, what do you think about that? How does this fit into the fervor in this country against the notion that there are some very rich people who don't pay enough taxes and who hide their money? Look, I, I, I think that it does certainly feed into that narrative, but I would question whether or not Trump is going to benefit from it because I think as more and more is revealed about the kind of business practices that he himself has engaged in, uh, they lend themselves to a similar kind of, of, of accusations that have been going on in this particular episode. You know, he's you know, used the bankruptcy system to his great benefit. Uh, he has uh, put the regular uh, working people out of work uh, in, in multiple instances in, in his business career uh, and taking advantage of the laws as they're written and crafted only to enrich himself. So I, I'm, I think it, it, a lot of the people that are Trump supporters – uh, share this kind of anger at the system that is exemplified in this particular example of the Panama Papers. But Trump himself is a, is a 
very flawed messenger for that particular message. Ken Good is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a 13-year resident here at the center. We're going to take a break, Ken. We're going to come back and get into more of this Trump-specific specificity that you're that you're talking about, particularly his crazy foreign policy. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Igor Volsky. We'll be back right after this. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. All right, 20 minutes after the hour, the Leslie Marshall Show continues. I'm Igor Volsky of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Joined by my colleague, Ken Good, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress. Ken, Donald Trump has spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks explaining his foreign policy to editorial board meetings in very, very long conversations. I didn't read any of it. I don't know anything. Boil it down to me in three sentences. How would you summarize Trump's view of the world? Well, I, I'm not sure you can boil it down to three sentences because it's so erratic and unpredictable. There's absolutely no way to, to, to describe what he's talking about doing. I'll just give you one example. He identifies the biggest threat to the world as the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And in the same interview in which he identified that as the number one threat, he recommended the proliferation of nuclear weapons to Japan, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, and a host of other countries in the Middle East. What? So it just <laughs> yes. it just strikes me as uh, the kind of reckless and dangerous foreign policy thinking that we haven't seen in this country in generations. That sounds like our Trump, because the overarching theory is you let these countries just do whatever they want to do when it comes to nuclear technology. You pull out of NATO, you pull out of our bases in the Pacific. Why? Because they're not making us any money. Yeah, he wants the world to be more unpredictable. He wants the United States to be more unpredictable. And that goes against the foundation of the global security architecture that the United States has led for the last 75 years and it has prevented the kind of great power conflict that we saw at the beginning of the last century, which killed tens of millions of people. And this is the kind of thing that he's trying to do deliberately. He wants to turn the United States into a North Korea type uh, type country with it with the way in which he wants to engage in foreign policy. But that's precisely what he doesn't understand is that the fact that this structure, these alliances have prevented conflict and you can't put a monetary value on that. So this idea of analyzing our entire global infrastructure, our security apparatus through the lens of a business person is actually the exact wrong way to look at it. Well, I'm not even sure. you. It's charitable to describe what he's talking about as a business person. Yeah, it's charitable. much more about like a protection racket. You know, he thinks that these that we should be shaking down these countries for essentially payments for us to protect them. 
And that's just not how the world works. It might make you know intuitive gut level sense to be saying, hey, you know, the United States is getting the raw end of the stick here. But what we are getting from these alliances is a global security architecture that has worked to the enormous benefit of the United States, has enabled the incredible peacetime economic expansion that we've experienced over the course of the last 75 years, uh, and that has just been the bedrock of the global security system that he would just basically upend in a matter of minutes. And it doesn't mean that it's perfect. It doesn't mean that it works every time. It doesn't mean that coalitions are great all the time. I mean, we saw with Iraq what happened. But you got to think about these things kind of on a case-by-case basis. What makes sense here? What makes sense there? He's making great generalities about what he's going to do in other parts of the world. And frankly, if you look at some of the coverage around the world to what he's saying, people are very scared in Japan, in South Korea, are very scared about what a Trump presidency would mean for them and for the security guarantees that the United States extends to those nations. These countries are asking themselves very serious questions about what whether or not they can count on the United States anymore. If they have a a major party candidate for president going around talking about the fact that we need to withdraw from NATO, that NATO is obsolete and no longer serves our interests, that our national security umbrella and our nuclear umbrella should no longer extend to Japan and South Korea, these countries are going to be starting to make decisions about how what they do in the future with their own national security interests in mind, and we might not like those answers. And this is just the challenge that he presents in an, in an almost offhanded way and dismisses the entire history of American global leadership. It feels like, yes, it feels feels like he hasn't really thought this through. He hasn't sat down and kind of put all the pieces together. But then it's very clear that he's had these views for a very long time. I mean, since the 80s and the 90s, he's given interviews where he said, our alliances cost us too much money. Yeah, he's been very consistent about this. You know, I mean, he gives off this air of somebody who is not serious about foreign policy. But you go back to the 1980s, and he's you know when there when there was great hysteria in the United States about the rise of Japan as a as a as a potential global competitor to the United States, and about how Japan had basically. Uh, taken the U.S. to the cleaners because it had had a 40-year run without having to worry about its defense and had built up its economy for all this period of time. Uh, Look at what's happened now. I mean, 30 years later, you know, Japan is still a very reliable uh, ally, but nobody is talking about Japanese global domination. You know, it's a a crazy uh, thing to go back and look at his his past comments in light of where the world is today and try and figure out where it would have been today uh, if we'd followed his advice then. And Ken Good, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, very quickly on the piece about the hate, which came out earlier in his campaign, banning Muslims from entering the United States. That's his solution to fighting ISIS. Talk about that. Look, you know, this is exactly the kind of thing that plays into the worldview and dynamic that ISIS is trying to promote around the world. They see this as a clash of civilizations between ISIS, representing all of Islam, and the crusaders in the West who are trying to attack Islam itself. And when Donald Trump and when other uh, uh, political leaders talk about banning Muslims or surveilling Muslim neighborhoods, it feeds directly into that kind of narrative that helps ISIS 
that helps ISIS in the Middle East, that helps ISIS in Europe, and that potentially helps ISIS even recruit in the United States. It's just very, very damaging to our security. And the crazy sense uh, on the right side of the aisle that all you have to do is say Islamic extremist, that you have to utter those words, and that's what's going to defeat ISIS is unbelievable to me. We hear that from Trump. We hear that from Cruz. All right, Ken Good, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Thank you so much for joining me. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. 13 Glad more years, Ken. Yeah, 13, 13 years. more years. 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. If you want to be part of the program, I'm Igor Volsky in for Leslie Marshall. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Hour of the Leslie Marshall Show continues on this ooh, April 5th, 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543 if you want to be part of the program. Joining me in studio now is Mike Medowitz. He's an economist here at the Center for American Progress. Mike, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure to be here. You know, we talk a lot about the politics and the back and forth and everything else. But I've always thought that when voters go to the election booth, they make their decision based on the economy. Economy's doing well. The party that's in power could possibly get another chance there. If it's not, it's time for a change. Yeah. But but it looks like now, just stepping all over my setup here, looks like looks like now, Mike, that the, the Obama economy, which for a long time there has kind of been, come on, here we go, here we go, we can do it, has kind of been in starter mode, has over these last couple of, um, what should we say, cycles done fairly well, and the latest jobs report has a lot of people kind of gritting. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you had a really bad recession, and... So, you know, what would have normally looked like a pretty healthy economy, just because you had this huge deficit in jobs that we were trying to make up, you didn't see the usual things that happen when you have solid job growth. And, I mean, that's kind of what the textbook stuff says should happen is, you know, first you see GDP come back a little, and then employment starts to pick up, and then slowly but surely you get a tight enough labor market that you start pushing up wages. And so we've been seeing, you know, we've added, I think it's 14 million private sector jobs, um, but we lost a ton in the recession. We had population growth. You know, it took a long time to tighten up the labor market again. And just this year, you're really finally starting to see some wage growth. I mean, it's not – there are people who are worried about wage growth. Um, there are people who are always worried about wage growth. But Now, the unemployment rate ticked up a little bit. That's because more people are now looking for jobs, right, coming back into the marketplace. Yeah. The, the question, though, and this is what you often hear Republicans point to, is that long-term unemployment is fairly high, uh, as well as, of course, unemployment for African Americans, for instance, is higher uh, than that for whites. How 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 significant are those problems? So I think those are significant problems. They're also big opportunities for the labor market. So, you know, we sort of look at what the economy can do to grow. You know, when you have a 10% unemployment rate like we got to. It's pretty easy to find people out there looking for work who you can put to work. Um, you know, you get back down to 5% where we are now, you know, you have to start getting a little more creative. So, 
you know, those people aren't necessarily all out looking for jobs. Some of them may have been discouraged earlier in the recession. And I think that's kind of the major story for the first few months of this year, as you've seen, you know, that this month is probably the cleanest example because you have, you know, I think we had about two, it was 215,000 jobs. Uh, so, you know, added a bunch of jobs that we actually had the unemployment rate go up because we've had so many people come back into the labor market. And, you know, when you're sort of looking over the horizon at what you want to get out of, you know, where you want the U.S. economy to be in 10 years, the fact that those people who had basically, you know, whether they were on disability, whether they were, you know, working in the informal sector, just, you know, cash jobs, the fact that those people are getting back into formal employment is a really bright sign in terms of, you know, what our future economic growth is going to look like. Now, a lot of the action in terms of economic policy has been on the state level because, of course, Congress hasn't been doing much. Hashtag do your job. Yeah, there has not been a lot. Not been a lot. Uh, but in places like New York and California, recently increased their minimum wage gradually up to $15 an hour, which, you know, when this movement started, Mike, I have to tell you, when you saw the fast food workers go out on strike, what, several years ago now, you know, yeah. I don't know how you felt, but I thought that oh, this is a pipe dream. You know, you were at about, what, 9, 10 federally at that time in terms of what, what the Democratic bill was. In, in Yeah, you're talking about the proposed as opposed the, the to the propo- actual, right? right I mean, the proposed. Now you're up at 15, and it seems really credible. You have very large states and hopefully, of course, leading the way for more to join that effort. Um, talk a bit about, I guess, what this represents um, for the workers in those states and what it will mean for those state economies. So, I mean, obviously it's huge if you're one of these workers, right? These are sort of the jobs where you just don't actually see wage growth happen very often, and a lot of that has to do with, okay, I'm not actually going to get nerdy and talk about <laughs> use of capital and productivity and stuff like that. Um, but, I mean, it's it's really hard to, to sort of get a lot of bargaining power in a job like that. And so, you know, having the state step in and raise minimum wages is is really big for the lifestyle of these people. Um, I think you have this sort of longstanding debate of whether you're going to make most workers better off but a few worse off in terms of, like, whether there will be, uh, you know, what the net employment effects are. And Yeah, let's dig into that. That's, that's the fun one for people like me. That's the fun one, and that's the big question because what you hear from the other side is, look – if you raise these wages, you're just going to have businesses not being able to pay their workers, and the businesses are going to shut down, and the very workers who you say will benefit will actually be worse off because then they'll be without a job. I mean, how much truth is there in that argument? So that is the argument that makes me feel, like, old. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate yeah. it. Um no, so because I'm I'm old enough that when I was an undergrad, so, you know, it, they they taught this as like, yeah, that's definitely what it's happens. It's a standard economic theory, right? And and I mean, it's it was one of those theories that was so standard that people didn't even really bother to test it until the 90s or so. Um, and you know, you actually have this really big literature in economics with people looking for this disemployment effect. And part of the reason of this really big literature is it's such a strong theoretical prediction, and so many papers kept not finding it. Um, so, you know, you're sort of the the thought experiment here is like you have neighboring counties and one of them raises wages and the other doesn't. And, you know, your standard story is that employment should go down where the wages went up and employment should stay the same or go up in, in the state where you didn't do anything. And we generally seem to be finding either no difference or the opposite. Um, 
and this has been a fairly robust result. Now, why, why is that? What have the standard economic models just missed? What have they not accounted for? Oh, man, what's, the wanna... new, what's the new thing here? The, I mean, that's that's such an open question, right? If you, it, right <laughs> Dangerous if you, to ask right, someone I mean, like you, apparently. No, I mean, a model is a model, right? Like, you know, I, I have my kid has a model airplane at home. It definitely can't fly. I don't know all the pieces that are missing, right? That's, <laughs> that's the idea. It's a simplified representation. Um, I think the, you know, one of the things that people point to is you see workers getting more productive in these jobs, and I think part of that is, you know, management saying, all right, if I have to pay these people this much, then I have to do things to make them more productive. Whether that's giving them more tools to work with, whether that's just lowering turnover, improving training. I mean, there are ways that you can make these workers more productive. And, you and know, maybe I, it's a combination of those factors. Well, yeah. That's what I, you're suggesting. I think it is somewhat. And, you know, when you do raise wages for, for low-income workers, you actually put some pressure on companies to go ahead and find these efficiencies, right? And, you know, we're really used to talking about that in sort of other policy contexts where, you know, I, I have a, an environmental economics background, right? So we're really big on you should tax the pollution because then people will have incentives to reduce the pollution. Well, you know, if you make if you make labor more valuable, you're going to make companies find ways to get more value out of their labor. Now, to what extent is it once the wage is increased and these folks who make minimum wage now have more coin in their pocket, that they're more likely to take this coin and spend it at the local businesses. And that's part, at least part of the reason why you don't see job loss, because you have more of that wage going right into the economy. Yeah, and I think we've sort of been hesitant to say that about most of these studies. I mean, that's that's clearly what's going to happen. I think, you know, that sort of gets into more of a macroeconomic story. And typically the way you're trying to measure this stuff is basically doing these microeconomic comparisons. So programming that kind of feedback back into a model is really complicated. To but, me, nothing, you know, in these campaigns uh, that for years you, you've had activists try to, you know, as we've mentioned, for, uh, push states and, and push certainly the federal government to increase the minimum wage. But to me, nothing works as well as success. That is, if you can look back, as the studies you point to, in areas where the minimum wage increased, and you could show that there hasn't been this dramatic job loss, and that businesses haven't all dramatically in one swoop closed down, that maybe you begin to kind of poke many, many, many holes in this theory, which we've all thought to be the standard economic theory, which you say hasn't been tested since the 90s. But we do here have examples, or thoroughly tested, <laughs> you you do have here examples, at least the beginnings of success. And I think if in New York and in California, these experiments go well, then right. maybe you'll see other states uh, jump on board here. No, I think that's definitely right. I mean, I so what I was getting at with the, the 90s comment is just, you know, we didn't really start having the tools to test this stuff empirically until the 90s. And it is kind of, you know, since then you've got this really large literature where people have been testing this and finding, you know, very counterintuitively at first and then increasingly in line with other research that, you know, you can raise minimum wages and you don't seem to be having these disemployment effects. Um, and so in some sense, the success building on success is almost how you have to do this, you know, when you sort of, when the theory tells you X doesn't work, but then you keep coming up with counterexamples, you know, that's how theories get improved. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, we're gonna have some really interesting data to work with out of this. I mean, most of the, the data we have so far is saying like, okay, so this county raised its minimum wage a couple of percentage points, but, you know, when okay. you talk about going from where we are now in California, New York, up to like $15 an hour, I mean, that's, that's a very big increase. And, you know, it's also, 
it's it's a little more uncharted and I mean I as the researcher am super excited uh, about seeing you how you say it goes. more data your your eyes light up I mean Mike Matterwitz he's an economist at the Center for American Progress follow him on Twitter at Mike Matterwitz I don't know if I follow you. I'll have to see. Maybe I should. I'm Igorowski sitting in for Leslie Marshall. We'll be back right after this. Leslie Marshall, straight and on point. 8886-LESLIE. April 5th, another big voting Tuesday. And joining me now on the phone is Igor Bobich, Associate Politics Editor at the Huffington Post. Igor, we continue our national radio tour. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks for having me. Listen, you uh, have an interesting piece in the Huffington Post, which really caught my attention because we've all been discussing oh, what can happen at the convention. What is it going to uh, take for them to find a nominee? If, it, if it's not Trump or Cruz on the first ballot, is it going to be somebody like Ryan? But you make the interesting point that maybe the ballot to watch is also the vice presidential ticket because there the delegates, the crazy, crazy delegates, don't have to uh, be bound to a, a certain candidate and can really, it seems, pick anybody they want to be on that GOP ticket. That's right. Uh, you know, typically, uh, presumptive nominee, uh, you know, typically the party selects a presumptive nominee and they make a decision on, on his or her running mate before the party's convention. So really, um, it hasn't been an issue at all in decades Uh if, however, in this in this election, uh, it does truly go to a contested convention in July, um, there you're facing uh, you know two races basically one for the party to settle on their nominee as well as their running mate. So it could, could make things really interesting, um, depending on whether it goes to the first or second or third ballot. I mean, there's just so many crazy things that can happen. Those are two of them that you outline. But people are also talking about what happens if Trump doesn't do well in Wisconsin tonight, goes into the convention in a very contested way, pulls out of the party, runs as a third-party candidate, and you're in a situation in November where he takes votes from both the Democrats and the Republicans. Nobody can really get 270. And then this thing goes to the, what, to the House. <laughs> That's right. Um, that would be the ultimate scenario to watch. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's... it's uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. Trump um, has made clear threats about basically, you know, possibly running as an independent. He recently renounced his pledge to the uh, RNC to back the eventual nominee, and he has even recently uh, told the supporters, you know, if, if you're if you don't vote for me, don't vote at all. So that could potentially handicap the party uh, entirely in November. I mean, we um, always you know, think Democrats. We always think that the the challenge with running a third party at this stage of the game is you've missed the deadline to get on the ballot and you're 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 kind of screwed but how hard is it to spell trump it's not everybody knows it and you can write this guy in pretty easily if that's what you're pushed to do by the man himself yeah that's right um you know his supporters talk to many of them and they are 
some of the most fervent supporters out there right now. Um, they believe in him. They they like that he's, you know, uh, not a member of the establishment. That he's a businessman. That he's not in politics. And they really don't like anybody else in this race right now. So it could be very, uh, you know, it's not a hard task for for him to basically order them just to vote for him and nobody else. I mean, in some respects, it's the ultimate anti-establishment move to run as a presidential writing candidate. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's what's going to make this convention so interesting. You know, we're potentially looking at uh, several ballots, two, three, four. Who knows? Who knows how long we're going to be there? You know, we've been wondering here uh, on the Leslie Marshall Show, what is it about Wisconsin conservatives, Republicans, that are giving Donald Trump such a scare? The fact that he's down in all of these polls leading up to today. Do you have insight from from being there, from talking to voters? Um, why why are conservatives in Wisconsin, unlike conservatives in New Hampshire, for instance, or, or South Carolina, why are they kind of giving him him a second look and saying, oh, maybe not for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look, take a look at New Hampshire, uh, obviously a lot more independent streak there. Uh, Wisconsin really is sort of similar to what Iowa uh, look like, basically. A lot of uh, conservative, uh, well-off voters, uh, more educated, especially in and around the areas of uh, Milwaukee, who, um, you know, are not his typical uh, voter profile. He tends to do a lot more, uh, a lot better with blue-collar um, less educated uh, voters, so I, I think they're they're trying they're they're finally looking through his his rhetoric and trying to find some substance there, um, as well as re- his rhetoric about women uh, that's turning people off. So I think it's uh, it's going to be a real test for him tonight. That has been the women portion has been a bizarrely successful strategy for Ted Cruz, who himself has a record on women's issues like I, nothing I've ever seen before, but is somehow. <laughs> able to run a campaign against Trump, has a whole, like, women caucus now who follow him and, and, and tell stories about what a great man he is to women. Um, who would have predicted when we were starting out that Ted Cruz, out of all candidates, would be making this kind of narrative? And at least at this point in the race, it appears to be sticking. That's right. You know, also on equal pay, he's uh, he's very backwards-looking. He, he, he does make this general narrative that he is for women, that he has a family. Um, he's also against uh, women serving in the draft, the potential draft. Um, but he's used this issue, and Trump in particular, very effectively to drive a wedge uh, between him and the electorate. Uh, in some ways, Trump, you know, retweeting this image of his wife played right into his, right into his hand and allowed him to, uh, to press the advantage. Um, and now it looks like it's, it's, he's reaping the benefits. But let's play this out a little bit. Let's say uh, Cruz wins in Wisconsin tonight when polls close at 9. Trump certainly doesn't drop out. I mean, he has New York coming up, a place of great support for him, Connecticut. Um, so do you then feel like you gotta? You, you, you really don't know? You're at the convention, and it's really anyone's game. I mean, is there after Wisconsin a moment like this again that's make or break for one of the top two candidates? Uh, well, you know, looking forward to uh, through April is really a delegate-rich month. Uh, coming up next on the calendar after Wisconsin is Wyoming, also a state where, you know, more Western, it's a caucus uh, where Cruz is likely to do well. Uh, but after that, you know, you're right. You're, you're looking at New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island, all states where uh, Trump, has, has a more advantageous ground. Um, in February, he blew out basically Massachusetts. So this this is a 
really good news for him. I, the problem is really how many delegates he's going to come out with tonight. If Cruz uh, holds them to you know barely five, six delegates, there's an increased chance of a contested convention. If it's a lot closer, um, it's really anybody's guess. Any predictions, Igor? I know always a dangerous thing to do in our business, but here it really feels like the script in many ways, if you look at these numbers, has been written. It's what Bernie and Cruz who are going to come out uh, tomorrow morning as victors in all of this. Or or will there be uh, something that's going to surprise us all? I mean, he's been Trump crisscrossing the state, actually sleeping in the state he's campaigning in and saying, get ready for a big blowout, a big surprise. I mean, Voter turnout has been has been high. Do you expect there to actually to us for us to be surprised tonight when the results come in? I don't, and uh, you know, it, I, I think Trump has been leading in something like eight of the last ten polls. Uh, excuse me, Cruz has been leading in the last eight of the last ten polls. Um, if if any prediction I'm going to make, and I've been burned by predictions before, so if, if there's any prediction I, I will make, it's that something something you know Trump's going to do something big. To try to shake up this race, if he if he comes out uh, losing tonight, and that's kind of been the pattern. You know, if there's yeah. any kind of moment for trouble for him, he's he's tried to do something dramatic to um, swing the race's life. All right, Igor Bobich is the associate politics editor at the Huffington Post. Igor, thank you so very much. On Twitter, by the way, at Igor Bobich, a great great follow. I'm Igor Volsky, sitting in for Leslie Marshall. It's been fantastic being with you this afternoon. Thank you so much, at Igor Volsky. On Twitter for your comments, thoughts, and questions. Have a good night, everyone. Bye bye.